What is up, everyone? Uh, welcome to Just Jack's Just Chat. It's Tor Talk. Uh, we're joined by Sam again. Sam, how are we? Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, you know, just covering myself in uh, <laughs> covering myself in uh, masks and hand sanitizer. <laughs> yeah, and I just moved into an all hand sanitizer environment. I got a hot tub of it brewing. I'm gonna go sit in that for a half an hour, you know. <laughs> oh, it's 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 weird, man. Like we, we we can't ignore the coronavirus, right? Like as much as it's in everyone's faces all day, every day. I think it'd be ignorant of us not to at least discuss um, its impact, or maybe uh, give our hot take on what what can help people. Because one thing that you'll be accustomed to if if you've been a listener of the podcast is we're we're, we're positive people. Um, and we generally think people create um, create needless worries and anxieties. That's not to, that's not to say that this isn't a, a serious issue. Um, it is, and we need to take be, be uh, precautious. But um, I think we need to put it in perspective as well, and maybe discuss how people can go about their day to day and live a little happier without the uh, without the stress or worry that the world's going to come to to an end. And if if you spend your whole time on a, on a Twitter feed, I can see how that. Um, how that starts to become maybe a reality in your head when when it's actually a distorted reality, not 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 quite um, not quite as it is sort of uh, dark as you're probably making it out to be. Yeah, I was just having that conversation with somebody earlier today that if uh, if this were 20 years ago and the only real form of news was reading the newspaper the next morning or watching the evening news on TV for a half an hour at night, I'm not sure that the uh, fear of coronavirus would have spread quite so quickly. And I'm not so sure if this were 20 years ago, hmm. 25 years ago, that you would have seen all these major sporting, you know, leagues and, and tours decide to take the time off that they have. Yeah. Yeah. You, 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 you're so right. And um, yeah, because the, the decisions have been made so quickly. I mean, it was only last week that the, that the that, that the players' championship was about to start, and there were fans allowed in the in the in, on on the Thursday. The Masters was still going to go ahead, um, and we've seen almost a U-turn, right? And it, it, in the fans not being allowed by the next morning, yeah, everything was shut down. You know, it took. I mean, I was listening to the Dan Patrick show, and he was ticking off like minute by minute. You know, three minutes later, this league cancels. Twelve minutes later, that one does. Seventeen minutes later, that one does. You know, in this era where information spreads so rapidly, almost everything is accelerated in its pace. And I think that includes, you know, when we take protective measures to ensure ourselves against whatever risk we may face, that we probably accelerate doing that faster than we ever have. And I do think that we've done some of that here for sure. Whether that's rightly or wrongly is up to people smarter than me. Lord knows I have my opinions on that. Yeah, like it, it's again, it's a tough one to talk about, isn't it? Because like, it's almost like if you if you're gonna 
if you're going to voice your opinion on a, on a, in a public space, then you, you should really have have your facts right. So I, I don't feel sort of qualified to to speak about its severity or to discuss its spread or or, or even the science behind how it was created um, and, and how it's gonna how it's gonna stop. But what I do know is you can approach every day with a perspective that enables you to live your day life um, in as normal a way as possible um, to be as happy as possible. And I think that's. I think that's really important, right? Because we're never going to know all the all the answers. We don't work for the World Health Organization. Uh, we're not experts on, on on this stuff. But what we can dictate is the thoughts that we have, the information that we that we choose to put into our brains, uh, the perspective we have on that, and the actions that we that we take. Um, so I think people need to approach this with a really positive men mentality, um, uh, but at the same time understand the severity and and, and live life uh, a little bit more precautiously, right? And um, Wash the hands more, social distancing, et cetera, et cetera. We, we've, we've heard all the protocols. Um, but I guess that let's, let, let, let's relate it back to golf, Sam. Um, I guess, first of all, let, let, let's talk about uh, its impact on, on the season. Um, and then I want to talk about the sort of the benefit I think golf can bring during this time. So we're all golf addicts, right? If you're listening to this, you, you love golf. Sam, you're obsessed. I'm obsessed. Like, the Moss has been cancelled. Not going to lie. Low-key, the worst thing that's happened during this outbreak devastating <laughs> you know i'm sorry like i know that there are bigger things going on right now is that? in the world and that <laughs> there are people who are sick and that there are people who are dying and that there's a lot of disruption left right and center but when i got that it was a buddy of mine sent me that text i woke up to a text from my oh buddy my that said masters postponed and man that was heartbreak like i haven't felt heartbreak like that since high school <laughs> like I was just devastated. Like I, I was already into that pre-Masters getting fired up for it phase. I was watching old Masters. I was reading about the Masters. I was thinking about all things Masters. And just to get that that text was devastating. Oh yeah, it it, it was devastating. Like it's, I actually sent the text to my friends saying, "Look, they can cancel whatever they want, but as long as the Masters on, I'm I'm good." Um. And then it got cancelled. So you like, jinxed it. What you're uh, yeah. saying is it's your fault. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's my fault. I, I want, yeah. Well, th thanks for that, Sam. I'm going to get loads of hate messages now. <laughs> Cheers, Sam. <laughs> yeah, anybody who's upset that the Masters is cancelled, just send a, an email directly to Mitch and yeah, just, blame him for it. Yeah, I'll take all this shit. I don't mind. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, obviously, it's, it, it's such a good time of the year as a golf fan because you know, the, the first really big event happens where well, you can organize there's a few big events january february there are but um you know the season hots up at the players championship for me um and then we were about to see you know four consecutive months of major championships followed by a Ryder cup so like it's a it's a golf fans wet dream right this this summer um it's been it's been set back we don't know what's going to happen um undoubtedly there'll be another major we don't know when but there'll, there'll be another one so i think patience is key here I think what we, what me and Sam have decided to do is take this opportunity. We we, we can't talk about the tour in, in very much depth and relate it back to fantasy golf because there's no events. Um, but what we thought we'd, we'd do, we thought we'd use it as an interesting way to to dive back into the history of golf and, and realize why we love the game so much. And um, today we're going to discuss the 1986 Masters, that famous uh, win of, of of Jack Nicklaus at the at the age of 46. But I guess before we get onto that, there's two things I'd, I'd like to cover with Sam. The first is the mental health benefit of um, of playing golf, and I think the the joy you can bring to people during 
during seemingly difficult times. But I'd also like to spend some time talking about Jordan Spieth. Um, as you all heard last week, we're, we're going to dissect a, a player's career um, every week, talk about the form, um, the ups, the downs, the, the past, where we see them in the future, etc. So uh, we'll get onto the Jack Nicholas 1986 win. Um, but for the, uh, for, for the interim, let's, uh, let's go into golf's mental uh, benefit. Sam, like, have you got any stories that you can share where you've spoken with people, Fallings members, uh, people at courses, where golfers acted as a sort of a, a true mental respite for them and, and in many ways saved them? Well, I do think what's interesting about golf is that as compared to most other leisure activities, uh, golf has its own sort of structural distancing that goes on when you play because you're a few hundred yards away at all times Mm -hmm. from anybody else who's on the golf course. You're outside in a big open space where I imagine, again, you know, anything I say that sounds like me attempting to relay a medical fact, put a big asterisk behind it because (laughs) I'm not sure if that's right or not. But I would presume that in a big open space, it's harder for the virus to spread than in a smaller contained space. So I would think that as far as activities go, you know, if you're doing an either or, which of these is more likely to result in you getting the coronavirus? It's like, well, going to a movie or playing golf? Is it, you know, going to bars, playing golf, going to restaurants, playing golf? I think playing golf is going to beat out most activities when it comes to the risk of picking up the virus. (laughs) And so I think this is going to be a high time comparatively for golf you know, in terms of the impact it's feeling as compared to the impact everybody else is feeling, I think golf is not going to get hit as hard. It'll still get hit, you know, but if you're a municipal golf course that relies mostly on local business, that's not really a a tourist focused golf market or golf course that I don't know that the effects of this are going to be as pronounced on you as they might be for other businesses in the area. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like people are gonna are gonna live with caution, so they should, right? There's gonna be people who are gonna be scared just to just to leave the house. Um, but I still think it's important for people to to be outside where where safe, where where there's a sort of um, a lack of people, I guess. Um, just to sort of just just to just to get some exercise, stay healthy. Um, but what golf does better than anything for for me and for other golf lovers and further potential golf lovers that haven't tried the game yet is the it's the escapism you get from it. You, you, you're there often with two or three of your closest friends, um, talking about anything and everything, having a good time, being competitive maybe, maybe just having a joke around. But you're outside, you're in nature, you're, you're engulfed in, in fresh air, beautiful scenery and good company. And that's, that, that, that just, that's so healthy for you. Like, I can't tell you a time where I've come off the golf course um, and being unhappy. I can tell you the times I've come off the golf course and played badly, um, but ultimately I've always felt better for, for going and playing golf. So what I'd urge anyone to do where and if safe is go and play golf and just rec- maybe it's time for you to connect with golf again, like understand like it's, um, it's foundation, like it's an outdoor game, like made for, for people who want to connect with, with nature and, and other people. So I think it's a perfect time for us to, to uh to reconnect with the game absolutely uh you know i also think that everybody is going to be spending so much time inside yeah even people who are used to you know and isolated that's what they're basically considering half an antidote to this thing is isolation Given that we're all going to be doing that in some form or another you know people who are used to seeing people at work and 
people who are used to, you know, going here and there throughout the course of their days, that those people are going to be at home and either by themselves or just with their families. And so I do think golf is an opportunity in a relatively safe environment comparatively to still have a little bit of that social interaction that we all are used to have. Yeah. I think it's a, a strange situation for a lot of people who are going to go from being surrounded by people most of the day to being at home, you know, surrounded by family. And that's it. If that. Yeah. It's exactly if that. And there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be worried about their jobs at this time because it's going to have an impact on the economy. Um, you know, there's going to be people struggling to make mortgage, rent payments, bills. These are all like stresses that are inevitable, um, are inevitable con- consequence of, of this. And I think if you can just get out on the golf course, play nine holes, like I think, just, I think the benefits of it are going to be untold to your mood and perspective. Um, so yeah, like I, 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 I it's, it's hard for me to put into words sometimes. Like some days. I feel really eloquent about uh, being able to describe the, the connection of golf and mind, but sometimes like you can't find the words um, and you just urge people to go out and see for themselves. Cause there's only so much you can say. Um, but for me, it's the feeling you get and it's, it's almost indescribable. Um, so look, I'm going to absolutely promote more golf during this, uh, during this time uh, where, and if safe and um, look the, the mental benefits of golf are, uh, aren't talked about enough. Um, and I, th- I think they should be. I think mass golf consumption is focused around the tour. That's great. But I, I don't see many media outlets d- during golf coverage talk about how, how golf is so mentally beneficial. I, I think that's a benefit of the, um, of, of the rise of the internet, right? And we're seeing more and more people look at golf at different angles. Eric Anders Lang's done a great job in, in speaking with people. I know recovering alcoholics and drug addicts, et cetera, who've, who found golf and, and found a, a, a way to, to, to cope and to, and to better their lives. So um, it's absolutely a benefit, and, and I couldn't urge you enough to go, and, to go and try the game if you haven't and to play as much as you can if you're, if you're a fellow lover like us. And even if you don't play, go out and sit in the cart and ride along with somebody who plays nine holes and just experience what it feels like to be out in nature uh, because golf courses are are oftentimes and most of the time beautiful places to be. And I think that everybody's uh, daily scenery is going to get a little more boring in the next few few weeks. And so I think to whatever extent you can go out and kind of change up the background of what you're looking at on a given day, it can't be bad for you. No, man, you 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 couldn't be uh you couldn't be more right, man. That's uh yeah, that, that that's that's awesome advice. It um it, it really is essential that people I think get outside and and do and do change the scenery every now and again. Um, the isolation fact is is real. Um, so look, whenever you can connect with people, I, I'd advise you do. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Before we move on to yeah, Jordan Spieth, sure. I wouldn't mind kind of talking a little bit about. Uh, the tour's decision as it relates to the players championship, the master's decision mm-hmm. or Augusta national's decision as it relates to the masters. Yeah. I'm kind of curious uh, if you think the tour did the right thing here. That's a, it's a good question. I, I think the, the answer is a, is a resounding, um, is a resounding yes. Um, but I do question what the tour would have done if it wasn't for the other sporting, uh, the other sporting organizations um, putting in such serious measures. I think the NBA might've been the first, sporting body to postpone the season i think that almost acted as a catalyst because what we have is a culture where we're, we're, where we're fear of failure there's, there's a lot of um people who are scared to make decisions because you're so easily exposed now it's easy to point the finger and, and blame i don't think people like taking that level of accountability so 
I, I think often, you know, organizations um, are often forced into, into making decisions because they're scared of making their own independent ones. Um, but I think you need to put the safety of everyone first. The travel required for the players and organizers to, to all these different events was going to lead to more, obviously, more uh, social interactions with people. Um, we're just not sure how this thing's going to going to play out, but cancelling it, we we know inevitably that um, social distancing will increase as a result, and I think that's the right thing to do. The the the, uh, the golf lover inside me is crying inside, um, but the other half of me is thinking, wow, it's going to be a pretty stacked second half of the year if we if we get this thing uh, under control. Um, so yeah, look, I I do think it's the right decision. As, as bummed out as I am about it, but I think it's also interesting. Um, the, the how how long it took for them to make that decision, um, and the inevitable and, and the the U turn that they took from the Thursday um, at the Players Championship to uh, to the Friday. Um, what 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 would your thoughts be, Sam? Yeah, I take a little bit of a different view. I'll start by saying that uh, I think the risk, and again, allow me to to pump in the disclaimer that uh, I don't work for the CDC. I'm not a doctor. Many of these facts may well be wrong, but I don't believe that the risk of hosting golf tournaments is similar or even in the same ballpark as the risk of hosting an NBA game or an NHL game or a soccer match or, Hmm. you know, it's so much larger of a space. Yeah. And I also think that if you host a golf tournament with no fans, I don't particularly feel as though the risk is dramatic. Mm. I, I mean, I know it's, it, you know, there are probably scientists who will sit there and say, oh, well, if, you know, you still have this many people on this confined space. And if one of them has it, then X, Y, and Z. But I do think golf had an opportunity to host one of its marquee championships over the course of a four-day period where it would have been the only game in town. You know, if after the Players' Championship, which you've already started, you know, you decide, you know what, the Valero Texas Open can wait. We don't need that one. I would have been a little bit more understanding of that. Mm. No one's ever going to criticize you really for acting out of an abundance of caution because you can always say, well, we don't know what nightmare would have befallen us had we not done that. But they also can't say that they know for sure what nightmare would have befallen that had they done it. And so I do my perception of the risk of hosting, of, of playing out the remaining three days of the Players' Championship with no fans, I don't particularly feel as though the risk was that true. Yeah. And so given that, I would have liked to have seen the tours stick it out through the players, take advantage of this rare opportunity that they had to be the only sport. I mean, think about ESPN in a week is going to have almost nothing to talk about. Yeah. And, and over that weekend had no sports really of, of major American consequence, at least to report. on. And so the, the PGA tour would have gotten all kinds of extra column inches and airtime and focus and, and ratings and whatever else, because it would have been the only sport that was available to watch in a time when everybody is, when a larger share of people are at home as compared to what you would expect on a given weekend. And so I, I, I do on some level believe it was an opportunity lost to take the stage that everybody else had abdicated. And I don't particularly feel, in a layman's opinion such as it is, I don't particularly feel that, that the risk they would have been taking was terribly grave. Yeah. That, now that's one piece of it, is the yeah. PGA Tour and what to do about the Players' Championship that was underway. The next big piece is the Masters. 
And that one's a little bit tricky because on the one hand, my attitude firstly is why would you commit to, to postponing it now when the situation two weeks from now might look different, three weeks from now might look different. Why not wait it out and, and see what happens over the next couple of weeks, yeah. you know, and, and get a better sense of, of what the environment is going to look like around the masters before you start making decisions like that. Mm. That having been said, I'm sensitive to that. The, the masters has enormous economic ripple effects throughout not only the golf industry, but even just the city that they part, you know, that they play the, the tournament in. And so you have guys like I was reading an article that interviewed the owner of T-Bone Steakhouse in Augusta, and they do something like 30% of their yearly business no in way. that one week. <laughs> yeah. In that one week period. Oh, and so dude. when he's, you know, ordering steaks, you know, he's, he's looking a couple weeks out and saying, I'm expecting, you know, 10 X my normal week in this week. So I have to load up on inventory mm-hmm. and by virtue of Augusta telling us that they weren't going to play that week. I know not to do that, and I can save myself all kinds of money by not buying meat that I'm going to end up not needing. So I'm sensitive that to Augusta being smart and good sort of partners with, with the city they live in on kind of giving everybody sort of uh, clear expectations rather than holding everybody in limbo. So I, I do understand where they're coming from. Obviously, a complication with the Masters is that the club closes over the summer, and in Georgia in July – it's not really an ideal time to host the Masters. So their options box seems to be, can they manage to squeeze something in the 30-day window between when they were going to do it and when it starts getting too hot to, to host a championship like that in Augusta? Or are they going to do it in September, October? And what does that look like? You know, And if they do do that, are they going to have a Masters in September and then a Masters again in April? seems a little weird it seems like having two inside of six months is bizarre mm. but i don't know yeah, uh, yeah i'm not sure what the right thing would have been for augusta to do i just know i'm, I'm annoyed that there's no masters to look forward to oh man i'm i'm, I'm so annoyed as well i i guess i guess the i guess the i guess you could say it was an early cancellation because it is in a period of way where you know potentially this thing could um could be under some form of control we have more visibility um, about what's going to happen. At the same time, you've, I think you need to appreciate the amount of uh, organization it takes and therefore travel involved in, in suppliers, um, in, you know, in, in, in helpers, in staff, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's very hard to sort of navigate that landscape um, with all these sort of um, lockdowns that are ongoing in the, in the, in the EU and probably going to knock on into America where people aren't going to be might be curfews, for example, or road closures, or um, or you know, public transport will be will be likely uh, banned. Cafes, restaurants, etc. So, like, I, I do appreciate that. Although it's maybe like six, five, six weeks away, um, I do think it's far enough away for the logistical logistics sort of ramifications to be to be pretty large. It then does beg the question, however, like like you mentioned, like when do we play this? And the answer is we we just don't know, right? Like, it, there are uncertain times. We're not sure, like. I hope I hope this thing's under control by the summer. We we have more of a visibility. Um, it could be that we play this thing in in October, uh, but we've also got the Ryder Cup this year, so that's that's another thing to consider. Like, will that event still go ahead? I, it's probably far enough away where you could say it, it might still go ahead. 
uh, but how will that impact the rest of the schedule? How will that impact the sponsors who are who you know who who are paying for all these events that are going to be cancelled? Like there's a large knock-on effect to the to the sort of the golfing economy in, in the world economy, I guess. So it's it's so hard to just identify a single cancellation um, and say it's right or wrong, premature or you know or, or anything indifferent when there's such a matrix of knock-on effects that that's going to have. Um, so I think like it, it, it's a strange one. We, we live in a time where um, we, we like to know what's going on, right? Information's commoditized, it's at our fingertips at all times. And when things are uncertain, people sort of feel a bit weird because they haven't had this level of uncertainty in a long time and it's new for our generation. So um, I empathize with the PJ Tour, um, but I guess we're just going to have to see what, what's next, right? We, we just you don't want to be the one, you also don't want to be the one entity that didn't cancel if it turns <laughs> yeah. out that was the wrong decision. It makes it that much harder to defend when everybody else canceled their events and you said, screw it, we're going ahead. And then if it turns out that in doing so, you put people at risk in a way that had a uh, cost that, you know, whatever that cost might be that it's not a good look when you when everybody else was smart enough to do the thing you didn't do and it turns out they were right. Mm. You know, as each progressive league canceled, I think the pressure kept mounting on the tour. Hey, you got to do something here because everybody else is. And if you're not, people are going to be wondering why. And I am sensitive too to what Rory said about it. He was like it would just look weird that everybody else is canceling everything. There's a, a worldwide panic over this thing. You know, it would be a little bit of a, you know, have like a, a Marie Antoinette kind of quality to it mm. if golf continues on, you know, playing for a couple million dollars or whatever while everybody else is suffering. Mm. I got, I mean, I have friends who are buying ammunition for their handguns because they, that like chaos is coming, <laughs> you know, so it's kind of an odd. It's kind of an odd mental place we're all in to try to have sports in the background. You know, maybe it doesn't necessarily strike the right note, but I don't know. I, I, with vis-a-vis the Masters, and this is the last thing to say about it. Uh, it made me miss the old Augusta chairman, Hootie Johnson, who I feel like, had he still been the chairman, would have been like, listen, we're playing the Masters. If you don't want to come, don't come. You know, like I I kind of would have loved to have seen that. And at the end of the day, by hosting the Masters, you're not obligating anybody to show up. You know, if players are worried about it or fans are worried about it, you don't have to go. Yeah, yeah. And part of me kind of wishes they did that. You know, it's it's a selfish part of me. It's the part of me that that would love to be, you know, ripping numbers off the countdown clock on the wall of 28 days till the Masters, <laughs> 27 days, 26 days. I would love to be doing that right now, and and I'm not, and I'm a little, my feathers are ruffled. No, I, I I can imagine, and you know, there's there's something quite romantic as well about this, about a sort of a um, a counterintuitive show of solidarity. If if the Masters came out and said, look, we know this might be controversial. You don't have to attend if you don't want to, but the Masters 2020 edition will still continue. Players are not obliged to play. Fans aren't obliged to come. Um, but look, if, if if you're a player in your game, then then come and compete. I mean, that would have been that would have been pretty cool. But I, again, it's just like you just don't know how that's going to go down. Like, imagine if there was a death or a severe sort of contraction of the illness for for, for multiple players during that time. It just would have been 
like maybe even too much for golf to golf to handle, right? The amount of bad press. So look, I'm I'm in the same position as you. My feathers are ruffled. I'm I'm annoyed, um, but I've got perspective, and I do know life goes on. In three four years, we'll be looking back and thinking, yeah, it was a it was a strange old year for for sports, but um, we got the other end of it, and uh, everything's back to normal. <laughs> You're a bigger man. Than- <laughs> um, okay, so f- fuck the coronavirus. Let's uh, let's talk about John Spieth. <laughs> Absolutely, I'll let you take that. Um, where do I where, where where do I even start with with John Spieth? Like, firstly, I want to discuss how impressive I think he is. Like, as a competitor, he is elite. Like, he's got one of those. He possesses that extra gear in a major championship or an important round or a certain stretch of holes that I think only a few players possess in the likes of Brooks Koepka, Roy McIlroy, Tiger. Like, it's an elite. It's in like an elite handful of players that have got that level of competitiveness in them, um, that level of drive. I love how animated he is. I used to find it annoying, but, like, I love I love the passion now. I see, I see it more from the from the fact he's just passionate about, about playing the game well. Um, and whenever you get a player come around who has that sort of a, that knack on sinking, draining putts like all all weekend long from like 20, 30, sometimes 40 feet is just like so entertaining to watch. He's never been a good ball striker, John Spieth. Um, he hasn't even really got much of a pretty swing. But I mean, to see someone put with that much venom, pace, like confidence is such an exciting watch. And it's so rare these days. So I think, firstly, like, I just want to spend time commending him for, for, for how elite I think he is and has been um, and how exciting I think he is to watch when that put is rolling. In a lot of ways, he's almost like a reverse Brady, where it seems, and it seems more this way now that you've seen his game kind of disappear a little bit and you've seen sort of what, like, a, you know, more of the baseline of, of Jordan Spieth looks like. But... He he managed to do so much with what I would term to be so little mm. as far as, like, not a long hitter of the golf ball, not a particularly gifted ball striker, not particularly accurate with the driver, not particularly long with it, not a particularly <laughs> genius iron po- not a particularly genius iron player. You know, but he managed to – but he was able to squeeze as much out of that orange as he could and, and did so to the tune of, of – a heck of a run he was on there for that little, you know, for that sort of 18-month window where it seemed like he was competitive in every single major championship week in week. You know, and I think it's been kind of a reminder of how much he was, you know, I, I use this term a lot, like red. He was getting the most out of his game at that Rory, I think, like when he redlines, he wins, but he doesn't do that that like his his sort of homeostasis is so high. Hmm. He doesn't get to maxing out of his capacity the way I think Jordan was able to get to it in the major championships during that run that he was on. And I think now you're seeing that when he doesn't get to the red line, his ordinary game is pretty ordinary. What's happening, motherfuckers? I hope you're having a great time listening to the podcast. Um, it is sponsorship time, and we are brought to you once again um, by the legends over at Four Links. Uh, what is Four Links? Uh, Four Links is a multi-golf uh, course uh, membership where you pay a monthly fee, and in return, you get points. You then use these points to play. Play in Nevada. 
play in California, even play in Arizona. Three states full of courses. Um, they're very community-driven, very customer-focused, and they're all about creating experience for the customer, which is why they've now um, launched um, their fantasy golf platform where you can utilize your points, enter tournaments, play against your friends, go in head-to-heads, play in leagues, and acquire and accumulate points, then go and use to play. So you can enjoy golf, you can enjoy having a bit of banter with your friends, um, you can enjoy watching it, and then you get rewarded by getting points to then play. Not only that, we're at a very immature stage of the platform. Um, as we see this marketplace develop and mature, we're going to see new product offerings, new things to use your points for. You can already use them to, to buy apparel, uh, to buy lessons, etc. But expect that marketplace to develop um, as time goes on. I'm going to stop the ad there. Those guys are amazing. Go check them out. Um, back to the podcast. Yeah, like I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, like it's, it's such an interesting. You all seem Sam, like I, I don't mean to lick your ass, but like you all seem to like have these points of view that are, that are stated in a way which makes you think a little bit differently. I've never thought about John Spieth like that. Um, yes, I've known his ability levels are perhaps less than the likes of Rory or or Dustin or Brooks. But I've never looked at the analogy like, wow, he's really got the most out of himself. Um, and uh, I, I think you couldn't be, couldn't be more right. And as, as well, in, in, a, in a day and age where um, all the marketing, all the talk is about like distance, length, bombs, like when it's all about like distance off the tee, it's really refreshing to have a player so fucking good at putting that it just also almost offsets that part of the game. And it's like, look, I don't really need the driving distance that you guys have got because I'm shit on the greens. And that's still a, an exceptionally important part of the game. That's maybe a bit of a lost art. And I think, um, I think that's a really cool thing. Um, so I think, he, I think he owns that well. Uh, but like you said, like when his game's not on, it is an ordinary golf game. Um, his swing's not that great. It, like He doesn't do many things amazingly apart from put when he's, when he's really on. But I, I guess his irons and wedges seems to stuff them when he's on a run as well. So I, I guess he can wedges for sure. Yeah, especially so. You know, I think inside of 125 yards. You know, and I'm sure we could go back and look at the numbers. I, I would bet you he rank at his best. He he would have to be pretty high up there in terms of when he gets the scoring clubs in his hands, when he gets around the green. You know, and and they don't call those the scoring clubs for nothing. That if you're extremely proficient in that part of your game. It can do wonders, especially in the majors where you don't have to race so far under par. Uh, it can do wonders for you as far as you know managing to hang with guys who might be hitting the ball better than you, but they're just not cleaning up their rounds as, as efficiently. Yeah, like you, you're absolutely right. We we see it happen all the time with Rory. Like Rory's only ever like posting these low numbers and and winning when he's stuffing it like inside ten feet and actually making some putts. I think we we can all relate to that, right? Even as as amateur golfers, I play for fun. If we're if all of a sudden where our shots from 100 yards in are going to going within sort of 15, 20 feet, and we're, we're all our puts pretty close, like our score improves drastically. I think a lot of amateurs struggle around in and around the greens, right? Bunker shots, like different tight lies for, 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 from the sort of the semi rough or fairway um, shots that are sat down the rough, like all these sorts of shots. And I think if you can. If you make green and regulations and roll your putts, you're going to go a long way to improving your score. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I also think, too, that it's instructive to look at when someone's scoring well, hmm. what are the drivers behind why they're scoring well and how sustainable are those. And I'm not going to get this stat exactly right either because I heard, overheard it on a telecast when they were showing Jordan speak the while. 
but they were saying something along the lines of that during run in like 14, 15, 16, that uh, by such a wide margin, he was making so many more like 15 to 30 than everybody else. And that is something that's a difficult thing to sustain. That if that's the foundation that your scoring is built on, that your that well will drop. Mm. You know, it's just destined to. You're not going to read the greens as well. Your speed won't be as. You know, it's just not an area of the game that's easy to be particularly consistent. And if you were having a run like that, like you know, when Tiger was having a run like that, you looked at some of his stats. A stat you saw him at the top of the board at almost every single year in that run was he was first. He was hitting greens, and if he putted well, he'd blow the field. Yeah, and, you know, and even if he didn't, he'd still be right. You know, and I think that's kind of the opposite of what Jordan was dealing with, where he putted so well that if he hit the ball decently, he'd he'd have a chance. But a lot of times, he was making up for you know subpar ball striking, extraordinary efforts on the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I, I couldn't. Agree. Nobody puts well. You know, even Ty, you know, for as good a putter and as good a clutch putter and as good a major championship putter as he's been in, you've seen plenty of tour events where, or plenty of major events where he's switching putters in the middle and he's adding lead tape and he just doesn't have it. You know, it's a very difficult thing to, to bottle up and hang on to for any sort of sustained period of time when week in, week out, you're playing on different surfaces. You know, they're, it's not only are the surfaces different, but the brakes and contours are different. Mm. Feel for the speed of the greens week X, but week Y you don't. It's, you know, it's just a, a really difficult uh, form of domination to sustain. Yeah. It's much easier, to, in my view, to sustain excellent ball strength. I mean, Jack didn't have a great shot. You know, was never a particularly adept putter. You know, if you needed him to make one, he always seemed to find a way. But Jack didn't have a gazillion putters, including the ugly one he won with in '86, because he was, uh, uh, you know, virtuoso. Yeah, look, I, I think you, I think you made some really interesting points. Um, and again, I, I think maybe what Jordan Spieth might be able to do, or should do, or might have already done it, is have a look at his schedule, man. Like, what was his schedule in '14, '15, '16? What what greens was he prepping himself on um, in preparation for the majors? Like, what gave him the feels? Um, that enabled him to sink so many puts. And I think if he just sort of keeps it simple off the tee, doesn't care about distance, just tries to hit fairways, dials in his wedges and sorts of try and, try and find anything he can to get that feel back on the putter, we're going to see an elite John Spieth again. But right now, I think we're seeing a guy who's desperately, desperately trying. Like, we keep seeing glimpses of brilliance in, in rounds. That fourth round at the AT&T this year at Pebble Beach was uh, was excellent in a round where everyone was over par, I think. Jordan might have shot a 66, 67, maybe like a 500 par round, um, which was way ahead of the field. It, it's quite clear that he can still, he still got it. It's just, I just think something needs to click for Jordan, and I think we're going to see him right back there. Like while Tiger's in his, in his sort of the, the end chapter of his career, the next sort of five to seven, eight years, I'd love to see a few Speed, Rory, Tiger uh, home stretches on a major Sunday. Um, maybe it's utopian, but. Um, I'm rooting for Jordan Spieth, man. I think he can still get it back, but um, he needs to find that feel and get dialed in with his wedges and keep things simple off the tee. Such a likable guy, too. Yeah. You know, I think a class act through and through, uh, honorable competitor, uh, the kind of guy that's easy to root for. 
And I think that if he is able to get his game back to that level he was able to get to before, that he will see how many fans he has and, and how well-liked he is personally. Because I think everybody will be pulling for him. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think, um, I think it's it's hard when you when you're under so much scrutiny and you go from such a such a sort of period of of, of well, I say dominance. He was you'd expect him to compete at every competition he was in. So he, he was he was up there as the you know I think he was number one for for a while. Um, he was in the top five for a long time. So. Um, I guess it, it it must be hard to sort of have a fall from grace. I, I reckon, as a as a competitive golfer, it must be. I bet I bet he feels embarrassed, right? I, I think he just must feel embarrassed to not be able to. And you got to yeah. think the place he's in gets darker every day. Yeah, you know, until you start seeing the results come, and and you have a reason to be confident about where your game is and where it's going, you know, and not necessarily manufacturing that reason to believe in your head but but when the results give you that reason to believe mm. i think uh there's a there's a big distance between where he is now and where that is i think he'd have to see himself win again i think he look at using tiger as an example mm. that loss of confidence that and grant you some of this is wrapped up in injury also but i i think only some of it Tiger, after that, the Thanksgiving and the fire hydrant and his whole personal life falling <laughs> apart, it took him a few years. to. Get, he went from a guy that if he went three tournaments without winning, you were surprised, to he didn't win, period, for a while. And he didn't win. And I, I don't think he won again until 2013. 2012. That. Am 20, I getting that right? 2012. He, had, uh, he was player, I think he was the PJ Tour Player of the Year 2012 and 2013. Okay. I think so he, had, he so had five wins in 2013 about, as well. Right. So you're talking about t- 10 and 11 where he didn't win at all, yeah. which would have been if the, the day before the fire hydrant, if you had said, what kind of odds are you going to give me the Tiger doesn't win, period, for the next two years, you would have gotten yourself quite, you know, quite a price on that bet. And he was at, at the pinnacle. And it took him another 10 years to win a major. So – I, I think the list of people who have fallen down the rabbit hole of darkness that golf can bring to you sometimes is pretty long. The list of people who have been able to climb up and out of it and get their game back to where it ever used to be, I, I, don't, I don't know that that, I mean, that's a, you know, for, for every 20 of the former, there's one of the latter maybe. Mm. Yeah, it's another it's another really good point you make. Like to to be able to re- regain almost the magic that you think's lost is such a a mental jail to be to be stuck in. Um, and as well for Jordan Spieth, I see a lot of dependence on his caddy Michael Grella. I see a real team there. I know Michael Grella went through a few personal issues. I think he lost his dad. So it's almost like a culmination of events that have led to maybe a period of inactivity of of, of practice, some injury, some mental issues like. It's almost like a knock-on effect to the rest of your game. Like the whole Tiger, you know, prostitution, prostitution scandal, fire hydrant, whatever you want to call it. Like that was an issue, yes. But then 
it was how public it was made. It was his injuries. Um, it was obviously a, a bit of a delayed reaction to the death of his father. Like these are all things that we, we don't think about as, as the viewing public. We just see them as these really talented golf professionals. Why can't they bring their A game every week if they're that talented? But they're just normal humans. They go through regular shit that we go through, like loss, injury, um, sort of the yips, loss of confidence. These are all these are all things that they go through because they are inherently human. I think we need to give give some time and space for 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 that as well. And maybe I'd like to see like I'd like to see the fans get their arm around Jordan a bit more. I think he is well liked, but he did get a lot of criticism early on in his career. If, you know, people didn't like him him shouting at the golf ball, etc. But if it's one thing America loves and one thing the world loves, it's a it's a it's a phoenix rising from the ashes to its former graces. We we've seen the best sporting stories in the ever of being the ones where you know players or, or, or competitors reach the level of eliteness. Muhammad Ali, Tiger Woods, there's an incident in the lives that have led that leads to a bit of uh, adversity um, and a fall from grace. And then everyone loves that comeback story. Absolutely. It's what made that Masters last year so amazing and such an uh, emotional one for even just the viewer that we had all kind of watched along with Tiger as he struggled to get back to that highest of levels. And so to see a 10-year a journey back from the, from the abyss finally pay off for him, you know, it, was, it was emotional. I was emotional watching it. it was a, it's, it's the story everybody loves in sports. Mate, it's, it's, I've said this to a friend the other day. Like, a lot of us, I think, like kind of rely on sports teams or, or sports individuals somewhat to to sort of power us on our journey. Like to see Tiger win after that. Like I've been a Tiger fan for as long as I can remember, and I've like I've been the guy who's argued back at all the haters, all the critics. Like, like I feel like I kind of on a lower scale or a consumer scale has kind of been through this shit with him. So like for him to win on a personal note was like so like. It was just, I don't know, it was so emotional. And if, if anyone is feeling down the dumps about the world at the moment, just go to YouTube, type in T- Tiger Woods winning the Masters 2019. It's a four-minute, two-second video. I watch it every other day. And look at, look at the guy's face when he, when he, when he taps that in. There's, that, there's that, like, that, that relief, that like the weight is off the shoulders. Like I've, I've been working so hard for this. I've been through everything. And now I'm finally here. And it takes him a while. He shakes the hand of uh, Tony Finau of Molnari. He turns to Joey. He's like, "We did it, Joey!" And then his arms in the air. I'm like, the, the elation, the joy, the love. Like, it is just such a feel-good moment in sport, and one that we're so lucky to have witnessed, and um, and one we're to hold on to forever, man. That was that was a special win last year. I I don't know that I would put it. I think I might only put it behind '86 as my favorite Masters. If you're looking at at least in the time in the time frame where I've been alive, you know, yeah. you, I was only a year old in '86, but I watched it a million times since then. I think I would put 19 second behind. It was such an exciting tournament, and and to put it to make that Tiger's comeback, to do it there, to do it against a stacked field, it was uh, it was something else to watch. It was it was I don't know that I'll. It'll be a while before I watch a Masters with that level of emotional investment like I had last year. Yeah, man, it was it, it was intense. It's, it's probably it's probably a good thing that this year we're, we're taking a hiatus, right? Just to, just to get a so we could so we can prepare because ourselves. it never could have lived up anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I think the only thing that that, that would be would be a would be a back to back win for Tiger, right? Um, but we'll, uh, we'll 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 see when that happens. But I guess it leads us on nicely. 
after after that to discuss um, the Masters in 1986 and what that meant to golf, what that meant to Jack Nicholas's legacy, uh, and what, what what story did that tell us about about sort of human beings and um, and what can be and what can be accomplished. Um, I'll be the first to say I'm I'm a 26 year old. I am a golf lover. I know about the 1986 Masters, of course. But I'm no historian on it, so Sam, I'm, I'm sort of uh, I'm relying on you a little bit here, pal, to uh, to lead the way with the facts and figures. I of course know about that final round, and I of course have my thoughts on what I think it took um, personally to to accomplish that and what that meant for the game of golf. But set the scene, Sam. April 1986. Yeah. Well, I'll start by saying this: that uh, I was only one at the time that this happened. In fact, I think I was less than one. Uh, I was born in 80, in June of 85, so I would have been about nine months old at this time. Mm. And uh, I, I obviously didn't see it live. But the Masters does something that I think all of the major championships should do. And for that matter, the PGA Tour should do. That you can go to the Masters YouTube channel, and they have the final round broadcast of every Masters since they began televising it. Mm. And that is a treasure trove of fun historical journeys to go back and watch some of those f- famous masters of the past and any any endeavor of trying to watch some of the best masters of all time the, to my mind the one you got to start with is 86 mm. jack was 46 years old he hadn't won a major since 1980 it had been about 6 years and there's just about 150 things i love about that story but one of them i really enjoy is at the beginning of the week Jack was staying in Augusta with some family friends, among which was a gentleman named John Montgomery, who saw an article in the newspaper that basically said Jack's washed up, he's done, the clubs are rusty, it's over, <laughs> you know, just just count him out. He's not going to be a factor this week. And John Montgomery, friend of Jack, knowing knowing that Jack is a competitor and what makes Jack tick, John Montgomery cuts that article out of the newspaper and he puts a magnet on it, tapes it up to the wall, or, or puts it on the refrigerator so that Jack has to see it every morning. Oh, wow. And Jack would see it every morning and, and think, like, my clubs aren't rusty and I'm not done. And he played reasonably well Thursday, Friday, Saturday. He just couldn't make anything. But he made, did he, was and it so 71, 74? The, Sorry to cut you off, but he, I, think he, I think it was sluggish Thursday, Friday, right? He might have shot a, I think he went 74, 71 maybe? Ah, uh, let's let me take a look. Sorry, I, I think the first round he shot. Good question. Yeah, he shot 74, 71, 69, and then the Sunday 65. Okay. So he was definitely kind of behind. Mostly happened to do, I think, or at least as far as what he said, mostly happened to do with the putter that he hit the ball all right. He just wasn't making anything. And so going into the final round, he started the day. Four shots back at two under. The leader was Greg Norman at minus six. And Norman was starting the first leg of what later came to be known as the Saturday Slam. Norman, in 1986, was either the leader or co-leader of all four major championships after three rounds. Wow. And the only one he managed to win was the Open Championship, which, if I recall correctly, had a pretty sizable lead after 54 holes. But he blew the lead at Shinnecock in the U.S. Open in June of that year, and he blew the lead in the PGA. That was the year that uh, Bob Tway holed out from the bunker to take it from him. Oh, my God. And so Jack goes into the Sunday, four shots back as he's making the turn, nothing doing. 
he gets to the, you know, he fails to birdie the eighth hole, which is one of the par fives where you really got to make, you know, try to make some of your hay. But he holes about a 15 footer for bird, maybe a little bit less for birdie on nine. Then he makes a snake on 10, like <laughs> one of those putts from the front right of that green to the back left of that green, 25, 30 feet, six, seven feet of break, makes that one. And I forget, I think it was Steve Melnick was the announcer at that time, had a really prescient line when Jack makes that putt at 10. He says, don't count him out on this back nine, how many times he's played it next to nothing to win. Jack birdies 11. Now he's birdied 9, 10, and 11, and he's only a few back. Bogey's 12, which was just a huge amount of wind out of the sails for him at that time. But the board was crazy. You know, at, at that time, I think at the turn, uh, you had within two or three shots of the lead, four or five guys, including Ballesteros, Longer, Nick Price, Norman, Tom Kite, Tom Watson was hanging around. Corey Pavin was hanging around. The who's who? There was a, a laundry list of guys that were in the hunt there. And then, of course, the, the probably the, the two most famous moments of that day, I would say three maybe, back to back to back. At 15, he eagles 15. 16, he hits it to a foot and a half birdie, 16. And then he makes that famous, the yes, sir, putt on 17 for birdie. Greg Norman, hell of an effort in that event. Uh, after looking like he had kind of shot his way out of the golf tournament yet again on a Sunday, he birdied 14, 15, 16, and 17 to pull even with Nicholas wow. at minus nine going to the 72nd hole. Norman hits the 18th fairway, uh, and like he did other times in his career, I think it was 185 yards, he tried to hit like a cut four iron. And he blew it miles right into the gallery. He makes bogey and Jack win. Tough to take. But there are just so many iconic moments from that. You know, he's standing in the fairway at 15. He's 200 yards out. Uh, and his, his son was caddying for him that week. And he asks his son, uh, how far do you think a three will go here? <laughs> and uh, his son says it's either that or a four iron. And he goes... I'm not talking about the club. <laughs> and then he hits four iron to, to 15 feet, makes that putt. Just an amazing moment. And then 16 is another amazing moment. He's standing over it, and Jack's vision wasn't as good at that time as, as it was when he was younger. He was starting to lose his eyesight a little bit. So he had a hard time seeing up on the green what was going on. And so he hits, I think he hit five iron into 16, which, boy, it'll go to show you how different – the clubs were then like that's an I think Tiger hit eight iron last year yeah. and most guys hit seven or eight maybe at the most uh Jack hits five iron balls in the air Jack bends down to pick up the tee he's not even looking at it and his son says be right and Jack without even picking up his head to look at the ball goes it is oh. and the thing ends up a foot and a half Jack says it's the cockiest thing he ever said in his career which very well may be true Oh man, that's uh, it, it's just uh, that eighty-six Masters is just it's so iconic, and for so many reasons. I think a reason why it is is because, again, the relatability of the story of a comeback of a of of a of a guy who was cast off of an underdog. We just love an underdog story, um, and to see a man who did a couple of so much 
come back and avenge the critics uh, with such a gutsy back nine. Like coming home, you know, shooting thirty on a Masters Sunday is rare, um, and to do it with the with the with the people on that leaderboard as esteemed as Tom Watson, as Kite, as Norman, um, is such an such an impressive thing. So I think it's like the the level of performance, the comeback story. The father-son relationship adds another layer. Like, how cool would it be if in, like, I don't know, six, seven years' time, Tiger's sort of last few competitive Masters where he thinks he can win it and, and Charlie's on the bag from, like, you can only imagine it, the, 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 the story around that, right? Like, there's something we love about... Um, we, we, we always come back to, 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 to people and places and experiences, right? And I think the 1986 Masters had that in abundance. It had the storyline, had the drama... It's at Augusta, Georgia, the most iconic golf course in the world, um, and there was so many sort of uh, so many sort of uh, people connection stories throughout. Like whether it be the father son, whether it be like you mentioned this at the start, where they they put the newspaper article on his fridge to get him fired up. There's just so many, so many intricate, cool, iconic stories that make that Masters. I don't know, like it. So I guess I don't need to say the word again, but iconic because it it just is. It's majestic. Um, and as well, I, th- I think something that well, one of our one of our sort of regular guests, well, I say regular, he's, he's been on tw- twice, Jimmy Tropicana of Tropicana Golf and Barbershop. Um, he's a massive lover of the eighties, and the, a big reason is the is the style and the fashion. And we go back and watch some of the the highlights and YouTube footage of of the eighty six Masters. Polyester pants, just <laughs> looking cool, man. The it's golf fresh. shirts with the giant collars on them. It's fr- it just looks fresh, doesn't it? To, to watch the, the how, how how far sort of styles come and um, and the progression it's made. But to see the exact same setting with this with a bunch of professional golfers trying to win the same same jacket, um, but in a completely different era. I think there's something romantic about that Masters as well. Oh, no question about it. And, and I think too, that, uh, I think you, you see in that event, Mm. the golf course lengthwise playing closer to what it was intended to play like than I think you see it play now. I mean, grant you, they've in the time since lengthened the golf course pretty significantly and started to put some of the same clubs back into the hands of the guys. But I think even still the challenge at that time, as far as the golf course at Augusta National, it was a different challenge. I mean, mm. You're not going to see anybody hitting a fucking four iron 18. That's just not happening. You're not going to see anybody hitting a five iron and a 16. Not happening. Interestingly enough, though, at 12, uh, the par three, you do see similar clubs. It's, it's eights. Sevens, eights, and nines, and and seem, seemingly always has been. I'm not sure why. The, I guess part of it is it's not a it's not a hole that involves hitting a driver at any point. But that hole has kind of retained its challenge even as the golf ball has gotten mm. longer. But I would love to see, I would love to see in Augusta where guys had to hit long irons in the 18 again. Yeah, you're, you're right. But I, I, as well, I think that bunker that, could, that comes into play, right? I think you see a lot of. Definitely saw a lot of players last year overhit the drives. If they didn't get the, quite the fade they wanted on, it was rolling into that in that bunker on the left, which which mm-hmm. which which poses some some difficulty. So um, a lot you did see a lot of players laying. You, you see a lot of players now laying up short of that bunker, right? Which I guess still leaves a still leaves a high iron in, right? It still leaves a sort of an eight nine iron in. And it would be cool to see. Yeah, and I still yeah. think uh, on the eight, on the seventy second hole of a major championship. I'd like to see a hole that makes people hit a driver. 
Okay. That that you ought to have to hit the 18th fairway with the driver. If 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 we're talking about a place that has a major championship every single year, especially on a golf course that uh, has so much excitement to it, if you were to rank the holes on the, on the second nine at Augusta from most exciting to watch to least exciting to watch, uh, I, I would have to put 18 near the bottom of least exciting to watch of holes on that second nine. So I'd like at least for it to be a little bit more demanding and to see a little bit more more room for more bogeys at 18, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. And I think a course that we can maybe uh, maybe sort of uh, use as an example to see how fresh it is when players you know, hit, hit long irons in the, the green on the 18th. You look at Marion, you look at Justin Rose's win in 2013, was it 13 US Open, 14? Yeah. Uh, where he, he he hit he hit the ball from almost the exact same spot as the Ben Hogan uh, plaque, where he, where he played that I think it was a one iron from um, for however many, however many yards in the, I think the 1950 um, U.S. Open. Um, that was so that that was a cool one, right? Where you seen a you seen a player hit a long iron into the 18th. Phil Mickelson's chasing you, and your ball's just landed next to the the plaque of of Ben Hogan. And you knew that. What was cool about that major was that you knew as they played the golf course throughout the day that no matter how much of a lead you built up, that you had to hit two golf shots mm. coming down that stretch there, two or three. You know, that, that 17 was a, a par three of pretty serious length. I think Sunday it played like 245. And then 18, you were going to have to hit a drive in the fairway and a, and a long iron under the green. And that to me is a, a proper way, as, as you Brits might say, that's proper golf. <laughs> as far as I'm as far as I'm concerned, you know, in a in a major championship, you know, to to force people to make the kind of swings you have to make with a long iron, you know, comparatively, there's just no wiggle room there, and it's more exciting to watch. Yeah, yeah, you, you're absolutely right. I guess it's uh, I guess the 18th still a very intimidating tee shot with the trees, right? It's it's still a difficult tee shot, even though you don't have to hit driver. I mean, like as we saw with Tiger's 18th hole, the last year's win, like it's not straightforward. Those trees are, are dangerously close on the right hand side. It's quite yeah, tight. Yeah, that's definitely true. It's and I think as well, you've got you've got to be careful how much you how much you fuck with Augusta National because it is Augusta National. Uh, it will be interesting to see how golf courses um, in general uh, approach the the, the ever increasing uh, length that players are hitting the ball because I think it is an issue. The, I think players are going to start hitting the ball a bit too a bit too far. Um, and I want to see golf tournaments where like other parts of the game are really, are really well, um, are really well sort of uh, received and, and benefited from. Like we saw in the last few, few sort of uh, tournaments on tour, um, you know, it became a lot more than just about the, your driving distance, your driving accuracy, your short game, um, you know, saving par was almost like a birdie. Um, I, and I, I think I prefer that type of golf to hitting the ball 350, wedge to 10 feet, sink the birdie next. I agree. I completely agree. So, um, yeah, look, the, the night, I mean, yeah. just the balls it took for Jack to hit some of those shots coming in <laughs> to, to basically not miss a shot, save for the, you could argue, I suppose, the drive at 17 was a shade left of, of where he would have liked it. But to, to go from the from the fifteenth tee in and basically not miss a shot. That that in a in a major championship, you know, it's it's the difference between 
you look at a guy like Norman who had – if you look at the, the, the way Norman played the game and the talent that guy had, I, I think there's no reason why he couldn't have won so many major championships. But mentally, when it came down to it, you know, Norman was able to make four birdies in a row to get himself back in it. But once he got back in it, he blinked right away. And as opposed to Jack, who the shots he needed, he had them. You know, coming in, barely missed one. Did everything you had to do, put the ball in the proper places, places he could make putts from, hit the ball the correct distance, manage his emotions, manage everything it takes coming down the stretch in, a final, in the final round of a major to be able to, amid all that excitement, think about how excited you would be in, in, in that body you haven't been there and done that in so long. All you want so badly is to, is to grab that one more to manage your, yourself th- through that level of excitement. It must be enormously difficult to do. Oh, yeah, I, I, I think, you, again, you, you explain that so well. Like, he's got his son on the bag. It's, it's last, one of his last, probably his last chance to, to win um, a green jacket. It's uh, there's so many people there. You're surrounded by amazing players. It's an amphitheater. The noise is flowing through the trees. Like you know, you've got it. You know, you've got the talent to to deliver. But can you deliver? Like it's the most exposed any one person could be in a sporting moment. It stood over uh, the golf ball coming home to to close out a win. Um, and a win at Augusta National that meant so much to Jack's career. Took took nerves of steel. Um, and huge testicles, <laughs> like it. Amazing. It it it's a, it, it's it's hard to put into words just how like how elite and how brilliant uh, that win was. And and when it had been so long, and so many had wondered if you could do it again, and you might be wondering to yourself, is this going to be my last bite at it? Am I am I never going to have a chance like this again? One thing a lot of people forget about too is. Nicholas didn't come far away from doing it again 12 years later in 98. That I remember watching, I was, by the time that Masters rolled around, I was 13. And I remember, and I had, I had already kind of learned about the legend of Nicholas and the Masters. And I, and I remember when they turned on that telecast in 98, that the first thing Nat says is, you're not going to believe what you're about to see. And Jack birdies two, he birdies three, wow. he birdies six, he birdies seven, and he's 58 years old, and he was two back, like, with ten holes left. And it kind of stalled out, and he didn't, and, and, you know, nothing really happened for him on the back nine, and I think he finished maybe four or five shots behind, and he finished tied for sixth. But, but he almost did it, I mean, 12 years, as wild as it was to do what he did in 86, he almost did it again. 12 years later oh, like, w- w- like, again like that's that's incredible and a part of me wants Tiger to pop up at like 56 years old and, 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 and have a little go at it like it, it's amazing like I think the most recent recent example of that is um, is Tom Watson at Turnbury in 2009 Open West Stewart Sink one Tom Watson was so so close to winning that Open like he just the age just got to him like he just looked so fatigued in that playoff I think he missed I forget how it came out on the 18th green but I think he missed a makeable putt um, and he just looked tired but like it was amazing amazing to see someone in his late 50s 
challenging at the Open Championship. Like it's such a rare occasion that when it does happen, um, you can't help but 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 have so much admiration and love for for, for the person that uh, that's out there still competing, still giving it the role, um, and still trying. To I had that week with Tom Watson. I had put uh, like I, I forget what kind of odds I got, but long story short, I had put some money early in the week on Stewart Sink. And so if he won the open, I stood to make like fourteen hundred bucks or something no like way. that. And I'm still pulling for Watson. <laughs> like <laughs> like I didn't care. Like like that was such an amazing thing to watch that I was like, I can't possibly lose here. Because if Watson wins, it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And if he loses, I win the however many, you know. And so and what what I find to be especially sick about that O nine open at Turnberry is Watson comes to 18, the 72nd hole, with a one-shot lead, puts the ball in the middle of the fairway, and then he's got something like 185 yards into the 18th, and he hits eight iron, which you would think for a guy that's 59 years old. Is he 59? 185 wow. yards away. You would think eight iron, if anything, is probably going to come up a little bit short. Yeah. And his ball landed a yard on the green and rolled over the back from where he three-putted from, like, the first cut in kind of an ugly fashion. And then you knew once he gave away that chance, you know, when all it took was a par on 18 to do it, and he gave that chance away, you just knew he wasn't going to win the playoff. You knew that was going to be such wind out of his sails. Yeah. I don't think anybody's ever been less happy for someone to win a major than the golfing world was for Stuart Sink to win that one. I think Stuart Sink said something along the lines of his own kids were rooting for Watson. (laughs) Yeah, like it's a, oh God, it's another fun throwback. And I guess like, I know we've we've obviously discussed the 86 Master there at some length, and I hope people have um, have really enjoyed it. But go back and watch it. It'll, It'll put chills down your spine watching Jack, you know, past his prime with less than his best to watch the way the gallery just kind of puts him on their shoulders and he rides that to to a win and watching him walk off the 18th green arm in arm with his son uh, you know the guys in the booth had tears in their eyes anybody at home has tears in their eyes i still get tears in my eyes going back and watching it it's almost amazing it, it, it for me will be the number one major of all time until and, and I can't imagine there ever being a time that something pushes that out of that top spot. Yeah, man. Like it's. Uh, I, I think. I think what we should all remember, especially at this time, is that um, I think often to know where you're going, you sometimes have to look back at where you've been. Um, and I think if you look at the 1986 Masters and soak up the love, the connection, uh, the folks on experience, being out in nature, positivity, like just all round good feeling. I think that can even even just going back and watching that can can give people a better perspective about what's going on at the moment. And again, if nothing else, just just some enjoyment because it was just such a special sporting occasion. And I'm actually, having done this podcast now, Sam, I'm so excited of the opportunity that it's given us to to, to go back into these historic classics. Like, I'm sure we're talking about maybe discussing the, the Tiger-Sergio battle um, in 99 PJ Championship, I think it was. Like, there's just that endless, endless stories and battles to ride a Cubs to, to go back and discuss and remind people of. And we, we can't wait to provide the platform for that um, until this, until the tour is back, and until we can start discussing our ropey picks um, on a weekly basis. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even look at it. I knew that they were. Uh... I hadn't even looked at how my teams did on that Thursday of the Players' Championship, but 
my instinct, if the previous week is any indication, I don't think I missed out on much. No, I don't think I missed out on much as well. I think I think Bryce had a good round, and Mark Leishman was five under. I think Bryce Bryson did have a good round. I I remember seeing that, and I I think I piggybacked off of you on that one. But I know that Rory didn't play particularly well. No, he uh, saved it, and he was my pick. That haven't been said, and Matsuyama. The Matsuyama, which is to say that he shot the 63, you're not surprised by, but if he shot 77 the next day, you wouldn't have been surprised by that either. No, absolutely. Um, but look, guys, we, we hope you've, you've enjoyed this episode. A bit of a different one uh, with, with all the coronavi- coronavirus talk, our, our, our sort of discussion on what perspective we think golf can bring in this, in, in, in this time. Um, some talk about John Spieth, a, a player we really want to, to come back to his prime. Um, and then that beautiful deep dive into the 86 Masters and what that meant to the uh, to the golfing world. Um, Sam, usually we, we end this in, and I'm uh, I'm still on the other line, but I've just had an idea. And to save me post-ending a song into it, I'm going to end this podcast here, but I'm going to play Ray Charles. You're not going to ask me to sing, are you? No, I'm going to I'm going to let YouTube Ray Charles do the singing for us, but I'm going to end it on uh, on Ray Charles, George, on my mind. Is is it sort of a it's just sort of like, Masters, we're going to miss you, but we know you'll be back soon. Ah, thanks. So I can just go back to my room and cry for the next 20 <laughs> minutes that we're, that we're not going to have Masters? Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I, I guess any good film we can give people, it's, uh, it's got to be tried, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm trying to get Georgia off my mind. <laughs> well, you, you best go then. You best piss off. <laughs> All right. All right, take these.